0: And our Old Testament lesson today is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, So I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. No longer shall they teach one another, or say to each other, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and remember their sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. This is the Shema, the centerpiece of Jewish morning and evening prayer services, something taught to Jewish children as their bedtime prayers in the traditional last words of a Jew. It encapsulates the monotheistic (laughs) beliefs of Judaism, and reminds observant Jews of the true focus of their religion. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter six, which reports Moses' farewell discourse. Deuteronomy is the closing book of the Torah or Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Collectively, the Torah describes a covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. We see an evolution in understanding from first Yahweh as as being the God of Abraham, special to him, but not necessarily the only God, to eventually being El Elyon, God Most High, the one true God. This is a part of God's progressive revelation to humanity as humans grow in their ability to understand who God is. In particular, The Torah is concerned with the Sinai Covenant. Recall that the Israelites were a group of tribes who were living as slaves in Egypt. God freed them from slavery, and they escaped into the wilderness. But then what? They were still just a ragtag group of nomads. The covenant at Sinai turned them into a nation. The technical terms under this covenant were suzerain and vassal. In antiquity, we see a number of covenants of this sort between a powerful nation like Assyria and a lesser nation like Moab. The powerful nation is a suzerain and agrees to protect the lesser nation, which is the vassal. And in return, the vassal is supposed to love their suzerain. Now here, love is not an emotion, it's an action. The vassal is supposed to support their suzerain, give them money or supplies or people in times of need or war. A covenant is like a treaty, but it's more relational. In the modern world, perhaps the relationship between Russia and Belarus is like suzerain and vassal. In the Sinai covenant, God is the suzerain and Israel is the vassal. In this way, God turns Israel into a nation because only a nation can be in this sort of relationship. What we call the Ten Commandments are actually the headline terms of the covenant. So think about the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, I'm your suzerain because I rescued you when you were in trouble so you will be my vassal and acknowledge only my authority over you." God goes on to list a bunch of other conditions, which are basically ways to support God or to take care of your neighbor, that is to love God or love your neighbor. Deuteronomy expands on these terms and on these themes and spells out just what it means to love God and neighbor, how that plays out in real life and what the consequences will be if Israel, as a nation, fails to uphold their end of the bargain. Jeremiah speaks out against Judah in the days shortly before their conquest. The Old Testament basically narrates the history of Judah and Israel through their rise, fall, and rebirth. They start as one man, Abraham, who has a grandson, Jacob, who gets nicknamed Israel. Jacob's 12 sons go on to found 12 tribes, one of which is Judah. After God rescues them from Egypt, they become a nation comprising these 12 tribes. Tribes. Eventually, they settle in Canaan and establish a monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. And that's the peak, after which they begin their slow decline. 10 of the tribes split off, so there's two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom is conquered, and then the southern kingdom is conquered and taken into exile. 70 years later, Judah is freed from their exile, and they return to rebuild. So there's this grand story arc from from nothing to greatness, to sin, to exile, to partial restoration. And in a sense, this is a type of all creation. In biblical studies, a type is a real person or nation or event that can be interpreted as representing something else, something greater. Israel's story arc can be interpreted in two ways, either going up or down in scale. So going down in scale, we can maybe see ourselves our own lives in this story we grow up and are formed into adults by our parents or some other adults then we're on our own and usually we screw up maybe in big ways maybe in small ways but regardless most of us go through some heartbreaks that we cause ourselves then like the prodigal son we come to ourselves return to god's guiding ways and become better people Going up in scale, Israel's story is, in a sense, a story about all of creation. We began as simple people, completely dependent on God. Then gradually, societies grew and changed. Every society suffers from systemic abuse or neglect of the poor and marginalized. Every human institution falls short of God's glory. Here and there, we can see bright spots in human history, times when societies did the right thing and were oriented towards improving people's lives. In America, I can point to the progressive era, which was from like the 1890s to 1920s. This was a time when robber barons had their power reigned in, when protections were put in place for workers and consumers, when women were given the right to vote, when educational access was radically expanded when most modern service organizations were founded. The Optimist Lions, the Rotary, the Kiwanis, the Boy Scouts, and beyond. Now these efforts had their problems. Um, you know, you know, We can't sugarcoat it, there were still issues, but there was a general ethos of helping to build a better society. But just as re- Israel's restoration after the exile was only partial, these bright spots in history are only partial and have not completely transformed the world. But the trend's in the right direction. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The world poverty rate based on the percentage living on less than $5.50 per day was 42.9% in 2018. Boy, that sounds bad, but it's a whole lot better than 68.1% in 1993. By nearly every metric, the world is a better place today than it was 500 years ago. Yet as far as we have come, we have a long way to go. So let me turn back to Jeremiah. This section of his prophecies came near the end of Judah's existence as an independent nation, but before they were actually conquered. I've said before that the Apostle Paul had a hard life. Well, so did Jeremiah. A few chapters later, he's imprisoned in a cistern and uh, you know nearly dies before he's rescued. His life was so hard because he was an outspoken critic of Judah's society. In fact, his recorded pronouncements were such extreme criticism that they gave rise to a term, a Jeremiad, which is a long literary work in which the author bitterly laments the state of society and its morals in a serious tone of sustained invective and always contains a prophecy of society's imminent downfall. (coughs) I I hope you don't think of my sermons as Jeremiads. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I, I go that direction. But anyway, basically, Jeremiah spent his whole life telling Judah's leaders how terrible they were. They mistreated the poor and ignored their commitments to God. But here in the middle of his ranting and raving, he takes a few chapters to give Judah hope. Back in chapter 29, we have the famous verse, For surely I know the plans I have for you says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. He encouraged those who were captured by the Babylonians to live as well as they could in that captivity, because one day they would be free to return to Judah and rebuild Jerusalem. Jeremiah spoke of a time when the material world of Israel and Judah would be reconciled. He said, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He basically said that they were being punished, but the punishment wouldn't last forever. He was speaking specifically about the restoration of Judah as a nation in what was once Canaan. Yet Jeremiah's words also point forward to the new covenant that Jesus Christ instituted. The original covenant was a suzerain-vassal relationship. Israel would be a nation that was a vassal to their God. But that was only temporary, as all things in this world are. That was just a way to teach them to follow God's will and God's ways. Moses said, keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. He told the Israelites to remember God's laws, to write them on their doorposts, to bind them on their hands and on their heads. He knew that people are forgetful and need constant reminders. But God had a better plan. God said, I will write it on their hearts. We have been given book knowledge in the form of a set of laws, but now we'll be given heart knowledge God knows love must come from the heart, not our heads. It must be both the absence of causing pain to our neighbors and the action of helping them. It must be incarnational. We have been made in the image of God. That image goes beyond our physical features. It includes our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. We must become image bearers by having God's heart. Since Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, we have become the body of Christ. We need to see our neighbors as God sees them and love our neighbors as God loves them. Now, that's impossible to do on their own, on our own. But with God, all things are possible. By that, I mean, if we trust our normal human instincts, We are almost certain to do the wrong thing. You know, I I preach inclusion, right? But but truthfully, when I encounter someone who looks and acts differently from me, I have my initial reaction is the normal human response, um, you know, the normal human biases against them. My conscious mind embraces diversity, but my subconscious mind reacts just like someone in a primitive tribe protecting himself from outsiders. But with God's help, I get a little bit better every day. It may be sometime, someday, my subconscious will get fully reprogrammed. In the same way, God is transforming each person to be a little bit more Christ-like. And collectively, our world is becoming a little closer to God's original divine plan. The days are surely coming when all shall know God for he will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That day has already come and yet is still in our future. We live in an already-but-not-yet state. We have already been forgiven through Jesus' life of sacrifice, yet we still sin against God and neighbor, and so we still need to be forgiven. We get glimpses of the kingdom of God those times when God reveals her love to us and we can feel her presence in and among us. But we, are, we know we are not yet living in that kingdom because we still see people suffering and dying, whether due to, to drugs or violence or poverty. But the days are surely coming and we can live into God's kingdom now if we, fought, if we allow God to write their laws on our hearts. Jesus did not abolish the law, but instead showed how it could lead to a better life. He showed that if we make God our top priority in our neighbor's welfare as important as our own, we can be a part of the kingdom of God now. If we trust in God's plan, we can turn our focus from protecting ourselves from harm to helping others thrive. Just as Jeremiah told the ancient Judahites, who were in exile, if we work for the good of others, God's grace will flow over and through us, partially restoring us in preparation for our future full restoration and reconciliation. One thing you'll notice if you read the Old Testament prophets is that by and large, they were failures. Jonah was the only one who was actually successful and he didn't want to do it. He was almost successful in spite of himself. Jeremiah preached that Judah needed to turn their hearts to God and follow God's laws, and they basically either ignored him or imprisoned him. The king even made a great show of burning the scroll that Jeremiah dictated to his scribe. I think Judah had to hit rock bottom before they would get the message. You know, it's like somebody in prison uh, finding Jesus, they have to hit rock bottom to realize that they need to rely on God instead of themselves. And I think the same applies to churches and to the, the church more broadly. We have to realize that relying on our own ideas and our own efforts is never going to be enough. But if instead we rely on God and place all our faith in God and put God's love into action, we can be a part of remaking creation according to the original divine plan and start to live in the kingdom of God now. Amen.